Um, I'm going to be in Matthew 28 this morning, if you uh, don't mind taking your Bible out or pulling out one of the Bibles in front of you. As a matter of fact, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those with you when you leave today, so you have a copy of God's Word in your hand. It, it's our gift to you, and if you know somebody that needs a Bible, you know somebody that perhaps doesn't have one and they're curious about it, there's about 30 wrapped, gift-wrapped Bibles in the back on that back table, and we'd love for you to take one of those with you and, and give it to a friend, or take two if you need to. So I'm very aware that our God, being the God of surprises, has been known to hold surprise parties in cemeteries. Not necessarily the place where you want to have a surprise party, right? It's it's not the kind of environment you want to be surprised in. I've tried to imagine what it would be like to be one of those individuals who showed up in the graveyard that morning when Jesus was resurrected. We're told according to Scripture that they came while it was still dark out. Anybody here ever been in a graveyard in the dark? Okay, it's kind of an eerie place. Lots of cold stones around. Not the ice cream kind, okay? Cold tombstones. It's kind of a creepy environment. Now add to that, think of this, the weight the women were carrying. Those individuals were feeling the anguish and the grief of all their hopes being completely evaporated. Everything that they had put their confidence in is gone. They believed that their future was in following this one. They did clearly not anticipate what would happen next. Now you might be there this morning. You might be able to identify with the women coming into the graveyard. You're feeling like you're carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. And maybe that weight is self-inflicted, things you've done, and you feel the weight of sin. Or maybe you're the victim of circumstances, and you're feeling like the women did, just the anguish. I didn't cause myself to be in this situation, but I'm there. And it's robbed you of feeling joy and wonder and awe. God has a capacity to surprise us. And clearly, the people at the tomb were astonished with their God encounter and did not see it coming. They thought they had God figured out. See, these are church people. The women in the story, they had been to the synagogue. They had been to the temple. They had talked about God. They hung around with Jesus. But they still didn't have God figured out, even though they thought they did. And they're stunned by the encounter. So it's really clear the followers had no expectation that he would rise. The resurrection was a shock. So here's what's marvelous to me. God's people were caught off guard by God activity. How much more so for those who don't have a relationship with God? That might be you this morning. Maybe you're just here checking things out. You're kind of amazed by this stuff. Well, in either case, whether you're a God person or you're a person who's just checking it out, God has the capacity to surprise us. One of the things I found most often repeated in my conversations with people who don't know God is that they're really surprised to learn that God is a God of absolutes. God is a God of order and law. So a confession or a statement that I typically hear these days from individuals is this. It makes no difference what you believe as long as you live right. You heard that statement? It's a fairly common one repeated in society today. It makes no difference what you believe just as long as you live right. 
Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, it does make a difference what you believe because what you believe determines your actions. If you don't believe me, just follow this little simple illustration. Two glasses, two pitchers with clear liquid. Both see-through, one hydrochloric acid, one water. If you believe in no absolutes, does it matter which one you drink from? See, there are absolutes. So if you believe in no absolutes, I would invite you to come up and take a drink. But if you believe in absolutes, you better hope that you chose the one that will give you life as opposed to take your life because hydrochloric acid will kill you. Water. Mm, I chose wisely. (laughs) Will give you life. See, there are absolutes. It's just in society we'd like to say there are no absolutes, but God is a God of order. He's a God of system. He's a God of laws. And he says there are some absolutes. So it does make a difference what you believe because what you believe about God determines what you do next. Let's follow this through to its logical conclusion. I'm going to state four truths for you this morning. Four truths that we teach here at New Hope. It's what I know that I know that I know is true. Truth number one, he lived. It's not a question, it's a statement. God the Son, Jesus the Christ, breathed, walked, and talked among us, a literal human being on planet Earth. 85% of the American population believes in the literal historical figure, Jesus Christ. God's word confirms it, Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son. See, the preponderance of the evidence is overwhelming. He was a literal historical figure. Truth number two, how he lived. It's not a question. Again, it's a statement. The magnitude of materials that are written about him are without comparison. In a very short span of a few earthly years, he propelled civilization into a direction previously unknown to the population of planet Earth. Women, children, the needy, the poor, the oppressed, all raised to a new status level because of the standards that Jesus established. Hospitals, universities founded, after the first century because of what Jesus did. No one ever, ever on the face of the earth ever had such a profound influence on the direction of mankind. So truth number one, he lived. Truth number two, how he lived. And then the tip of the spear in God's plan. The tip of the spear is the turning point in human history. Jesus came willingly to die in my place for sin and for you. Now, you've got to get your amens on this morning, New Hope, okay? You understand what that is. You go to sporting events, nobody has to tell you to get your amens on when your team scores. Yeah! Okay, we've got amen opportunity this morning. So we're going to get our amens on. He died at a specific moment, and this is the realm where time and eternity merge. And God spoke about that. In Hebrews 9.26, it says this, At the consummation of the ages... He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, something that was planned way before time on planet earth. And at the consummation of the ages, God brought it together where time and eternity merged together. And so we understand, based on what we've just read, that God is a God of absolutes. He manifested him to put away sin by the sacrifice, an absolute 
is God's absolute that a sacrifice is required because of what Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now maybe you've always understood or, or not understood why the shedding of blood. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, God has a standard. And God's standard looks like this. It says in Leviticus 17.11, the blood makes an atonement for one's life. Uh, very simply, the way I can help you to understand this is, when God showed up in the garden and He began talking with Cain and Abel after the murder of one of the brothers, Cain who killed Abel, God had a conversation with him. And He said, Cain, where is your brother? He said, I'm not my brother's keeper. I don't know. And God's response to him was, your brother's blood screams to me from the ground because the blood has life. So for God, the representation of blood is the blood represents life. So that's why we're told in Ephesians 5.2, Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. So Jesus delivered up to serve the sentence of death that I deserve. So truth number one, truth number two, truth number three, in a nutshell, that he lived, that he lived, and how he lived, and that he died for me, leads us to truth number four. He lives again. He lives again. He was resurrected. And there's something that God wanted everyone to know, the most important thing that I can communicate to you this morning. You're going to see the pieces fit together, how we know this to be true if we're going to call ourselves a believer in Jesus Christ. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 28.5. There's four times repeated here something very specific. Matthew 28, it says, He is not here, for He has risen. Just as He said, come see the place where He was lying. Go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. Mark 16.6, He has risen. He is not here. Luke 24.5, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but He has risen. John 20, verse 9, for as they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise again from the dead. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Cornerstones of the faith, all recording the same thing. Christ forever altered the destiny of the world. But here's what I know to be true. Many only give mental assent to that fact. In a recent survey by Rasmussen Report 2010, we were told that 79% of the American population believes in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's amazing because you can't get 80% of Americans to agree on anything. 79% of the American population believes that Jesus was literally bodily resurrected from the dead. Now, when you look around at the society that you know and live in and love, does it look like 79% of the people believe that Jesus Christ is the risen Savior? It seems to have no effect on their daily life. Why is that? People give mental assent to what they believe to be true, but it doesn't change them. Now, the resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith. It's everything that we have and hope for. There would be no Christianity if there was no resurrection. So a person who believes in a Christ who was not raised believes in a powerless Christ, a dead Jesus. And if Christ was not risen, sorry, but your salvation is not in effect. According to what Paul wrote, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. So either he was or he wasn't, and if he wasn't, you got no hope. 
So here's what we're going to do. We're going to move back to this moment and clarify what the women saw at the tomb. We're going to experience what they experienced because God caused Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to write down vivid details about something that he wanted us to see. Otherwise, he would not have moved them to write it down. So here's what I understand. In one moment, there's a lifeless body laying on a cold stone slab in the tomb. And in one moment, the breath of God re-entered the lungs. They inflate. And the eyes open up. And the King of Kings, the Lord of glory, rose. And there was an earthquake that shook the very gates of hell. And the Son of God came bursting forth. That's the truth of Scripture. So Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up again. Why, church? Because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It was not possible for death to hold him down. So let's look at the vivid detail. If you have your Bible open to Matthew 28.1, let's see what he has to say to us. We're going to experience this the way they did. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. So it's pre-dawn, it's dark. There's lots of other women. If you read the Mark account, you find that there's a pretty big group of people. Matthew only chose to list two of them. Now they were there on Friday. They've seen Jesus nailed. They've seen him beaten with a cat of nine tails. They've seen his beard ripped from his face. They saw Jesus stabbed. They saw Jesus pierced with a spear. They saw dead Jesus. And so they've shown up at a tomb expecting and anticipating a lifeless buried body. We're told in verse 1, they came to look at a grave. That's what they're there to see. Not an empty grave. They're prepared for death that's inside the grave. They'd come to see dead Jesus. Now, in the Mark version, we're told that as they walk to the gravesite, they have a discussion. How are we going to move this megas stone? It's a giant stone that's been placed in front of the tomb. And unless the stone is removed, they think he's still in there, they're not going to be able to see him again. So they came hoping somehow I'm going to have this last visit. Just what you do when you go to a graveside. Like bringing a wreath of flowers, they're bringing spices because they've never read Acts 2.24. They don't know that it's impossible for death to hold him. They don't have the benefit of Acts 2.24. And so they're coming expecting a dead body and they want to see him one last time. Verse 2, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Have you ever seen in all your life an image like that? I'd love to talk to you if you have because I never have. You talk about terror. Now, I've talked with individuals who said, when I stand before God one day, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Really? because I'm going to step away. Just let me know when you're going to do that, okay? Because you're talking about the presence of the living God here. This angel is fresh from the presence of God. They are still reflecting his Shekinah glory and blazing with white. They've come from another realm and they glisten. Matthew does his best to describe it. He says, it's like lightning. I don't know how to describe it. It's as white as snow. 
And no sooner do the women reach the tomb than the ground begins to rumble. The stones begin to shake. The earth quakes under them. We're told a megas seismos occurred. Now this is the second earthquake in association with Jesus' death. The first one at the cross. Do you know that every time that God shows up in the Bible, there's an earthquake associated with the arrival of God on planet earth? When God showed up on Mount Sinai, the earth quaked and Moses cowered because of the power of the great I am. When Elijah was on Mount Horeb and God revealed himself, the earth quaked because of the presence of the great I am. We're told in Revelation in the last days that there will be megas seismos all over planet earth because of the soon arrival of the great I am. So when you see another earthquake, a severe one, you're looking at the arrival of the great I am. And we're told an angel in blazing hot white descends, blowing open what was a secured, sealed grave, what had taken all the strength of several powerful Roman soldiers to roll into place, is gone and relocated in an instant. Now let's be very clear. The angel did not move the stone in order to let Jesus out of the tomb. It was not necessary. Jesus was risen right up through the white linen cloth that he laid in. He doesn't need an angel to remove a stone for him. God is not bound by death or any other created thing. God is not bound by any limitations. He spoke the rocks into existence. So if we see a rock removed by an angel, what's the purpose in the angel's visit? Because my belief is Jesus has already left the tomb. Why did God do this? The stone is taken away for God to give evidence to you of his amazing, great love for us in order for us to see a proof, and here's the proof, an empty tomb to prove my Savior lives. Sounds like the lyric to a song, doesn't it? If you're younger than 35, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But there's a song called Because He Lives, and that's one of the lyrics, an empty tomb to prove my Savior lives. That's why the stone was rolled away. Now, verse number four tells us, the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. You know, they got the worst job assignment in the history of the world. Can you imagine? Hey, you guys, I want you to go out there and guard this tomb, and you make sure that Jesus' body does not leave the tomb. You might as well and try hold back the oceans. Can you imagine you're given this job assignment? They're totally set up for failure. They're supposed to be keeping the body from leaving. It's not possible in this situation. Now, they've never seen such a being as this. And they're so awestruck that if you read the account closely, you see that the guards, Roman centurions, they had their own personal internal earthquake. And they went in possum mode. It says that they were, what? Terrified and became like dead men. They shook for fear of him. The literal Greek interpretation says they went into paralyzation mode like a possum. Okay? White, the blood drains from their face. They fainted because of what they seen. You would too. I would too. Now in this moment, before the women can run, he turns his attention to them. And look what he says in the next verse, verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. Now the women are too terrified to speak, 
So they're not even asking a question. How does he know what they're feeling? Well, if you've ever seen someone surprised before, you're looking at surprise here. Their face is visibly having a reaction and he knows they're full of fear. They're terrified because they're in the presence of the living God. And unlike the soldiers, they receive comfort. Now, they'd not come expecting to encounter the living God. Had no expectation that that's what's going to happen. But look at how great God's love is for you. God overlooks their weak faith. He overlooks their lack of understanding because they don't understand. And He responds with great, amazing love. I know that you are looking for Jesus. Is that you this morning? Are you looking for Jesus? Is that where you're at? Here's what I believe to be one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible that's coming up next. It's the key to understanding the encounter with the living God of wonders. Look with me at the next verse. He is not here, for He has risen just as He said. Do you believe this? He is not here. Stop looking in the tomb for Jesus. Don't look on the cross for Jesus. Now let me get theological with you for just a moment because Scripture is really clear. We're told according to Romans 6 and 1 Peter 1 that He was raised by the power of God. We're told according to Romans 8, He was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. And by Jesus' own words, He was raised by His own capacity. So the entire Trinity participated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And that's why the angel says, He's not here. Don't look in the tomb. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. And the angel reminds them, you shouldn't be surprised. Why are you surprised? It just happened as He said. See, we're not looking at a situation here in which Jesus was surprised. How many of you here think that Lazarus was surprised when he was resurrected? I do. (laughs) I'm thinking, he didn't see that one coming. Lazarus, come forth! And Lazarus walks out of the tomb. But Jesus promised his death. Jesus promised his resurrection. And so just as surely as he knows that he was going to die, and just as surely as that he knew he was going to be resurrected, He promises you with the same authority of promise He forgives you of sin. That you'll have eternal life with Him. That's your God. The same power that raised Him is the same God that has the power to forgive you if you will receive it. So if you feel like you're carrying that weight this morning and you came in here with a lot of burden, you can release it to God. He's big enough to carry it. Because the same power that raised him will raise you one day if you will believe it. So the angel backs up his claim and he gives them an invitation. In verse 6, you see the rest of it. Come, see the place where he was laying. Come and see. In our English language, we'd say, check it out. Look at this. This is amazing. Check this out. And so the women, by the way, do do you think that the angel said that without any emotion whatsoever? Or is he rejoicing because of what God had just accomplished? We're told that the angels are so curious about us, they long to look into the issues of salvation. I'm thinking he was pretty enthusiastic at this moment. So at this point, the women step into an empty tomb. And we're told according to Mark's version and 
chapter 16, that the angel went inside and joined them. I don't know if he walked through the door or if he just passed through the rock, but he joins them in the tomb and he reiterates the exact same message. Look on the screen with me. Mark 16, 6, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. So in decisive terms, he's saying this empty tomb is a witness to what Jesus said he was going to do. Why is that so important to emphasize? Because that's the major story that all of the disciples told from the beginning of the church all the way till 2013. This is the major story. Why? Because Jesus rested all of his credibility, everything that he had to say about himself on this one principle. All of his credibility to being the Messiah and the Son of God was based on the resurrection. In his very first public appearance, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And then in another time he said, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights. See, his resurrection is the evidence of his Messiahship. That's why Paul clearly said in Romans 1.4, he was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. That's why you cannot deny the reality of the resurrection because had he not been risen, we'd still be in our sins. So that's God's pledge to you that Christ's power to raise us is promised and backed up by God's power to raise him. So you should be stuck on this word amazed at this point because the angel said to them several times over if you read the account, do not be astonished. Do not be amazed. Now I don't know about you, but if I saw a glowing white angel that had the appearance of lightning, I'm going to be amazed, okay? I'm just saying. That's, that's the case. And if I'm seeing a rock that's been blown away from the door that Roman soldiers had to roll in, I'm going to be amazed. I'm just saying, okay? And, and if the earthquake rumbles the ground and it's a mega seismos and I'm feeling this in my body, I'm going to be amazed. So why is the angel saying, do not be astonished? You notice if you follow the verse through, he's not saying don't be astonished about the earthquake or don't be astonished about my appearance like lightning or don't be astonished at the door. He's saying don't be astonished. He has risen as he said. See, what he's saying is God's good to his word. Check it out. God is good to his word. He did just what he said he would do. God does what he said he would do. That's why he's saying, don't be surprised. So when I said to you earlier, Jesus Christ's resurrection forever altered the destiny of the world, and 80% of the American public believes that Jesus was literally bodily resurrected from death, but you see no visible effect in their life. Why is that? What's going on there? Here's what I find most people struggle with. It is not the resurrection. Most people struggle with the thought that God is big enough to actually forgive them their sins. And that that weight that they carry and the grief and the anguish that they walk around with every day, they really believe that it's possible to outsin God. And that God may be capable of raising Jesus. 
but I quit there. I don't believe that there's a new beginning. That, that, that's what they're, what they're saying. So they're, they're astonished that what God said, the angel, angels are saying to the women, don't be astonished because God is good to his word. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he says he will do. So here's the part that's not quite so obvious for people when they're reading this story. I think that they're, they're greatly mistaken in misunderstanding what Jesus was authoritatively declaring. But here's what is obvious and here's what's not so obvious. It's really obvious that the women who came to the tomb had a conversation with an angel and they hear the announcement of the resurrection simply because they were there. It's kind of obvious, right? And had the disciples been there, they would have heard it directly too. They wouldn't have had to hear it indirectly from the women. If they had come to where God was, they would have heard the same announcement. Here's what's not so obvious. The women were met by the angels because God sent the messenger to them in order to help them see God activity. Now let me explain that for you. The women didn't have to go to the tomb. If they had never taken a step in the direction towards God's activity, they would have never had the God encounter in the first place. There would have been no need for a God encounter. There would have been no need for the angel to arrive because the very word angel means messenger, means God was looking at them and watching them walk and said to whatever angel, go. And that angel went, seismos, earthquake, stone rolled away so that they can look inside. What that tells me is God's watching us and He sees you. And He sees you at the point of your need. And He meets you there. They had a need. They came towards God. God met them. So believers, I want you to hear me on this. And I know in a crowd this size, there's a potential that not everybody's a believer. So those who are believers in Jesus, hear me on this. This really speaks to you because the reality is this. The closer that you stay to God, the more you will see the power of God in your life. The more you will experience the reality of the God activity. Easter isn't just a historical event where we can stand up and sing loudly. It's the evidence of what God did in Jesus Christ to prove what God is doing in your life here on planet earth also. Not just in eternity. He came to give us life and to give us life to the full, right? That's his promise to us. So believers, hear me on that. The closer you stay to God, the more likely you are to see God's power and experience an encounter with the living God of wonders. But if you're one of those individuals who may not be there yet, perhaps you're totally not buying into this, and, and this is new to you and you're thinking, I, I'm not quite sure I fully understand this, let me encourage you with this. God will meet you if you will turn to him, he will not turn away from you. He said, anyone who comes to me, I will not cast out. John six thirty seven. the one who comes to me, I will in no way cast him out according to scripture. I will certainly not do it. That's with an exclamation point. So if you find yourself there this morning, you're not quite sure. I'm telling you, if you do what the women did and you take that step towards God, you will have a God encounter when you come to the point where you have enough humility in your life to say, I, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I know now why Jesus came. That He lived, 
how he lived, that he died, and that he was resurrected. So here's what you need to do this morning. If that's you and you're at that point, you have to confess your sins before him. You have to put your trust in him. You come before him and say, Father, I, I, I just need you. And if you want to talk about that more, after the service, I'll be in the back of the auditorium. I'll be thrilled to talk with you. But let me encourage you, if, if you choose not to do that, just release it to him. God's spirit will intercede. If you come before him in the humbleness like a child, Jesus said, because there is a new beginning in Jesus. I promise you, sin is a wound that can be healed. And I know the healer. He can take away your sin. He said, according to his word, he will separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. And here's where most people struggle. They think it's possible to outsin God. That they have to somehow earn their way to favor and relationship with God. You can't do that. It's a gift. If you could earn your way, it's not a gift. And if you could earn your way, that puts you in the position of being God. And that doesn't work because you're not. Right? Right. We're not. God's the one in control. So here's how I want to close with you this morning. I want to close with you for the last sentence, literal sentence that, that I will share, is a word of Jesus' own words. And then Gary Post, one of the pastors here at New Hope, is going to come up and join me. He's going to pray while I make my way to the back. So you can come and talk to me if you'd like. And don't forget about those Bibles back there. But Gary, if you'd come on up. We're going to look at this last word of Jesus. The foundation of all our hope is expressed in Jesus' own words. And here's what they are. John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. Do you believe that this morning? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.